Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. Well, the road to the White House is rarely a linear path. Timing and luck are an underappreciated part of it. You also need to have a message that connects with the moment and the discipline and the campaign infrastructure to deliver it. It's a lot harder than it looks. In good faith, I cannot tell you, my supporters and volunteers, that I have a path forward if I don't believe I do. This week, many were shocked to see Senator Kamala Harris suspend her campaign for president. To you, my supporters, my dear supporters, it is with deep regret, but also with deep gratitude, that I am suspending our campaign today. Senator Harris started the race with great promise. She was a woman of color in a party that counts on women and voters of color as a key constituency. As a senator from California, she had the potential to raise a lot of money, and she gained a lot of positive attention among liberals for her grilling of Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. She also had the backing of many high-profile Democrats, second in endorsement only to Joe Biden. Here to walk us through this moment in the Democratic primary, I'm joined by Darren Sands, political reporter for BuzzFeed News, and two from Politico, Laura Barron-Lopez, national political reporter, and Maya King, reporting fellow. Maya talked first about Harris's meteoric fall. You know, it's a big surprise to a lot of people that she lost altitude so quickly. I think, though, we can point to her waffling on the issues. Mm. You mentioned uh, her going after Joe Biden in the first debate. Shortly after that, when she was grilled on her stance on topics like segregation and busing, we didn't get a clear message from her exactly on where she stood with that. And it didn't help that we have 18 other people in the race who were able to um, articulate maybe a bit clearly, more clearly on their stances, maybe not on segregation, but on other topics. Right. And voters are really starved for someone who has a clear and direct message, which is why Harris uh, shot to the top so quickly, because she was able to demonstrate that. And then when she was pressed on it, um, it wasn't it wasn't as clear as, as we would have wanted it to be. Laura, what do you think? Is it that she just wasn't able to follow through? Well, when you ask even her supporters, the answer is different among all of them. And also people who didn't support her, but were very uh, impressed by her and had relationships with her. And I'm talking about black members of Congress that I just spoke to in the past few days. Emanuel Cleaver told me, look, I think that when she first attacked Biden uh, in that first debate about desegregation, that it didn't help her uh, with voters. Hmm. I also have heard that from some voters on the campaign trail. I also spoke to Marsha Fudge, who was a big endorser of Kamala Harris, and she said it really comes down to the money. She argued that we have seen Bernie Sanders reset his campaign multiple times, uh, the most notable one after the, the heart attack, and that Harris was starting to do that, but that she just didn't have the money to keep it going. Uh, And if she had had the ability to have that fundraising and the money to keep it going, then she thinks that uh, Iowa would be a very different story with Harris in the race. Right. There was sort of this historical context to her, which was initially attractive to a lot of voters, but it wasn't enough. Yeah, I think she had exhibited this ability to um, sort of be this uber-competent 
political figure in this very polarizing era in the country. She had gained lots of notoriety, if, if you all remember, um, on television in the Kavanaugh hearings, for instance. She was a, a mainstay of these very public, very public nomination process in this sort of raw moment in the country's history and the sort of nomination of a of a very controversial Supreme Court justice uh, nominee. And so I think that she had this this profile of someone who um, her supporters thought fit the moment and was uniquely positioned to to make waves as um, a senator who'd been elected in a a very large and diverse state and who had really been elected the same night as Trump. It felt like something of a... Uh, of, of almost a twist of fate that this um, young, telegenic woman who has this profile and this this rich history as sort of this adherent to the rule of law and had gone to an, an HBCU. Is, there was so much about her, bi- her biography that um, attracted people. And I think that part of the surprise in all of this is that she didn't get to use that to get people to the polls. And that was something that people in her campaign, I think, saw as a challenge because they didn't know that she was necessarily comfortable and she wasn't talking a lot about herself. This is like one of the values that she talks about comes from her mom is the idea that you are a representative of other people and like that you're helping people means that you put, you know, yourself um Second, and I think the last thing I'll say about that is that even in you see so many of her supporters online and um, on, on social media talking about how unfair all of this, all, all of the treatment has been. And I'm sure we'll get to a conversation about the media, but she's never said any of those words herself. And I think even in that, she's sort of symbolic of this intangible strength that black women in particular um, have been talking about in terms of pushing institutions to empower and entrust black women in particular with leadership. That's a really good point. And it is a point also that two of the remaining candidates of color, Cory Booker and Julian Castro, are making now in the wake of uh, Harris's bowing out of this race. And yesterday, I'm just reading what Cory Booker was saying in Iowa, he said, you know, what does it say about the Democratic primary that immensely qualified, widely supported, truly accomplished black woman running to lead a party that is significantly empowered by black women voters didn't have the resources needed to continue her campaign. And Castro went a step further and, to your point, Darren, looked at the media and said, that they held her to a different standard, a double standard that was grossly unfair by focusing on turmoil within her campaign rather than her message. So, Maya, can you address those issues that that Booker and Castro brought up? Yeah, I think they are pretty valid. I mean, without people of color on the debate stage, you miss out on a key opportunity to talk to issues that people of color really care about. Um, If I were Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, two candidates who are in floating around second and third place uh, with black voters, I would take this as an opportunity to really speak to some of those topics. And, you know, Cory Booker does make a good point because a number of, of black candidates do struggle to get top dollar donors. And I think that was something that Kamala really uh, faced at this point. 
But at the same time, I mean, the polls don't lie. And black voters have, across the board, uh, for the last several months, supported Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren. Those are their top three candidates. What do you think, Laura? Well, I think that the comments from Senator Booker and Secretary Castro are one piece of a larger whole in this moment right now within the Democratic primary, which is that the top four frontrunners are white, the debate stage looks like it'll be majority white, and and what leads to that. And this discussion about whether or not the fact that Iowa and New Hampshire go first uh, leads to that, the debate qualifications potentially maybe lead to that. Um, and yes, that, that already candidates of color and you add being a female candidate of color on top of that uh, makes it far more difficult to run a presidential race. And what natural biases does media have uh, when it comes to expecting more from a candidate like that opposed to uh, a more seasoned candidate like Biden, who, you know, Harris, there were early on, there was reports, and, and it's valid to report about this, that, that she wasn't spending that much time in Iowa. Um, but I, I'm not sure if I've seen as many reports about the fact that Biden just doesn't campaign that much. He is more now, but he doesn't do a lot of direct uh, stumping or rallies, and, and he hasn't for a long time. Of course, he's picking up because he needs to pay attention to Iowa. But maybe that's something that should be further examined uh, when it comes to uh, to how we cover these candidates moving forward and more diverse fields moving forward. But the polls, Darren, you know, Biden's strength with African-American voters isn't just a mirage. I mean, when you talk to voters in places like South Carolina, they say, look, he's been here for us. We know him. We have a relationship with him. We're not just going to abandon that for a candidate. We just don't we don't know that well. And we haven't seen um, sort of put in the years like Joe Biden has. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's an interesting question, because I think that we have to be a little bit wary about how the polls ref what the polls are reflecting mm -hmm. and and the electorate and who's being polled um as a short example i mean in florida in the democratic governor's primary there was polling that showed um you know that andrew gillum was like at best at third a, a third place mm -hmm. candidate mm -hmm. And this is the the primary for Florida governor. Yeah, yeah, and it what I think what it did when you talk to people who were campaigning and sort of talk to regular folks, their excitement about him as a candidate, I think, was something that wasn't reflected in the polls. And so, I think as reporters, we have to be careful about um, how we depend on polling mm -hmm. and be as transparent as possible. And the other thing about that, of course, is just that as reporters, we are thinking about this. And I mean, this echoes what um, Laura was saying, but I think that part of this whole equation is sort of the unintended consequences of in-depth reporting sometimes on these candidates. I talked to a, a top uh, Harris supporter who's, you know, understood that the sort of proliferation of these headlines about her really had a negative effect on donors and really tamping down their own personal um, enthusiasm about her as a candidate. And really, you know, it, it really turned up the heat on her 
campaign in a way that I don't think was necessarily helpful and certainly wasn't congruent with what they were seeing on the ground, which was consistent crowds, consistent mm. support, mm-hmm. um, consistent enthusiasm at the doors and in, in places like Iowa, um, people really clamoring all over the places yeah. that she was going to see her. And so this question of her dropping out then becomes a question of like, who's running the campaign and, and um, how those decisions get made, uh, how much of that factors into some circumstances that we're we're not quite clear on. Yeah, I just was going to add that I was speaking to one of her supporters in South Carolina yesterday, a local elected official, who was saying that the the atmosphere on the ground there at her events was just far different than hmm. uh, what people were thinking in D.C. or what, what the prognosticators were saying about her on TV. And uh, that he argued, you know, he said that he had been to, even though he Uh, officially endorsed her he had gone to every candidate's events when they came to South Carolina and he said that the difference between Harris events and every candidate's events is that consistently they were overwhelmingly filled to the brink and also filled with black voters Mm -hmm. and that gets to the question Maya too of this rift between younger voters and uh, who may be more inconsistent in terms of turning out or showing up at events Mm -hmm. um, and older voters who quite frankly have a lot more time (laughs) to do things like this. Can you talk a little bit about that, that if if what we end up seeing at the top of the ticket is a Joe Biden or an Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, that Democrats may indeed find themselves struggling to to get those younger voters and younger voters of color to come out? I think we got a taste of this in 2016. A lot of younger voters and um, irregular voters were pretty disenfranchised with the Clinton nomination, and some people just didn't vote. And it played into the hands, of course, um, in in some ways of of other candidates and of of the Trump win. But uh, also, you know, going back to what Laura was saying about how Biden probably needs to step up a bit in his own campaigning, He could probably use a push with younger black voters who are increasingly disenfranchised with establishment moderate Democrats. I think that uh, Booker does make a good point with that. And it's also one of Sanders' strong suits is that he's able to attract uh, younger black voters who are more enthusiastic about a more progressive agenda. So would it be enough then, as a lot of the conventional wisdom is speculating, um, Darren, to put Kamala Harris as a VP pick? for Joe Biden? Or does that look like so obvious, right? Like, I know what I need to do. I got to get younger voters, younger voters of color. So Kamala Harris, you're my VP. Yeah. I mean, when you talk to young people or any people really in places like South Carolina, this is how they're thinking about the primary. It's not individually. They're thinking about pairings and like, how do you begin to look at a ticket and that's how people who like are super voters um, are thinking about it. I do think that one of the things that is sort of apparent in my reporting is that um, there are lots of people who view the sort of transactional politics that um, Biden is sort of partaking in as more palatable, uh, more acceptable than what's happening with, for instance, with Pete Buttigieg um, in terms of how he has um, uh, navigated this primary um, and, and 
in the way that he's campaigned, it's it's preferable to I think um, some of the more progressive candidates and the tactics of folks who view, um, for instance, the Bernie Sanders movement as outside of the Democratic Party's mm-hmm. sphere and sees his movement as sort of beset with the same problems that he was beset with in 2016. That that Sanders has some of the same problems, you're right. saying? Or, right. That, and what would those be? Well, I think it's um, how he presents in the American South, particularly with black voters. Um, I think Biden's sort of firewall there is being viewed as something that um, Kamala Harris would complement very well mm-hmm. um, with her um, level of experience um, on the federal level, yes, but I think also just um, as one of the figures now who has, I think, come to symbolize the political moment in like a very sort of an emotional way, in a way that I think is speaking directly to um, the kind of voter in this country who wants the societal change that is going to come with um, women being given power and is is sort of being this kind of thing that men will step aside to um, help accomplish and to help, I think, sort of erase some of the um, real problems in our society as it relates to, you know, issues that have, you know, hurt our society, quite frankly, um, as it relates to discrimination against women. I mean, Laura, that is a really important point because, you know, in 2017, of course, there was the Women's March and mm-hmm. and the marches that followed that. 2018, you had a record number of women winning seats in Congress. There was a real sense that, and I remember talking to Democratic strategists, that it was almost a foregone conclusion that Democrats were going to pick a woman to be the nominee. That it just seemed for like such a for, yeah for twenty twenty. That it just seemed like such a natural fit mm-hmm. and such a natural reaction mm-hmm. to the Trump presidency. And yet here we are, two months out from Iowa, with three white men mm-hmm. at the top and one white woman. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that people are afraid that uh, Trump will win re-election. So uh, even though 2018 looked like it was showing a progressive trend line in terms of the number of women that were elected to Congress, the number of uh, women of color that were elected to Congress, I think voters are very, Democratic voters are very afraid that Trump will win re-election. And so they, they, they go back to what they know. They go back to experience with with candidates that they have and Biden is so well known and I think that it cannot be understated how much of an advantage that gives him and the same with Bernie Sanders who has also very high name ID right my how true is that do you think that this just overwhelming fear of losing to Trump is really what's driving voters right now and that that is making it harder for women and for people of color because they're still seen as too, quote unquote, risky mm. as, the, uh, you know, as a nominee. It's it's an interesting dynamic. Um, I think that all Democrats, of course, want their candidate to win. They don't want uh, the opponent to <laughs> to to get back in the or get back in the White House. But it does um, put up an unfair barrier 
to women and to people of color, this idea of competence um, that that counts against them. And especially like with a candidate like Harris, who showed time and time again that she could take Trump to task, that she was able to go after him. And we'll see that, I think, um, during her term as senator that she has to finish during the impeachment hearings. She'll be able to show um, a number of those people who might uh, feel tentative about a woman or a woman of color in the White House exactly what she's capable of. Well, Maya, Laura, Darren, thank you all so much for coming and talking with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Yet again, the biggest story in Washington this week is impeachment. On Thursday, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said this. Today, I am asking our chairman to proceed with articles of impeachment. The statement, while not really surprising, still marked a significant moment in the impeachment proceedings against President Trump. On Thursday, we also learned that the House Judiciary Committee will hold its second hearing this Monday, December 9th, on the findings of the Intelligence Committee. I sat down with a member of that Intelligence Committee, Democratic Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, who represents the 8th District of Illinois. Over the last few months, we've talked several times on the show about impeachment. I wanted to know if the way his constituents are reacting has changed at all. Since the beginning of the impeachment inquiry, uh, we've had an overwhelming number of, I guess, positive comments about uh, making sure that this impeachment inquiry goes forward and uh, that we do a thorough job and, you know, do it with the solemnity and dignity that it that it uh, requires. That being said, I know that as a whole, as a country, People remain divided, and they're still, um, in some cases, trying to digest what's happening. And, you know, going into the holiday season, this is not necessarily <laughs> top of mind for, you know, all of our constituents and, and the public. So, um, you know, we, we just have to continue to do our work and, and do it uh, with the, the seriousness it deserves and do it in a fair uh, manner. You know, we've now had 50-plus hours of testimony in front of the committees, a lot of that testimony broadcast live. And here we are uh, at this point with not a single Republican who says he or she will support impeachment. The public remains incredibly divided. What happened with those hearings? Why do you think they didn't really move the needle on opinions outside of uh, the, the Democrats? I think that People are still maybe trying to understand some of the the finer points of of what's happening, and you know I think that uh, quite frankly uh, people want to uh, you know perhaps you know see a trial. They want to see what what happens in the Senate, and they want to see the the witnesses that perhaps didn't show up to our inquiry hearings. And the reason why I think that's important is I think that. We are still in a process where witnesses are coming forward, evidence is being gathered. Our investigation didn't stop in the Intelligence Committee. However, the stonewalling and the obstruction really prevented a lot of folks from being able to testify who would have otherwise testified, even though there were a number that did. Do you believe there's any chance that some of the biggest witnesses, a John Bolton, a Mick Mulvaney, are going to show up in front of the Senate? Here's the interesting dilemma that Republicans will have in the Senate, which is that, you know, I think that whereas Mick Mulvaney or someone else like that 
could go to the lower courts and seek a, a, a blocking order, right. so to speak. Uh, now you have the Chief Justice of the United States presiding over the trial. He can basically rule on the propriety of requests for witnesses on the spot. Now, it's true that the Senate Republicans, uh, with a 51-vote majority, might be able to block his ruling. Um, however, how many times can they do that for, for all the witnesses and the documents that pertain to what happened? If there's one thing that I think came out loud and clear in public sentiment, it's that what happened here with the, with the Ukraine call is serious, and they want to know exactly what happened, and they, wanna, they wanted us to get to the bottom of what happened. Do you feel like you got to the bottom of what happened? No. I, I, I think that we have a broad understanding, but I think that there's still uh, a number of questions that remain uh, you know, coming out of the witness testimony. I think one of the biggest questions is who all are involved, how were they involved, and how was this pressure scheme directed? Um, I think that the Republicans, you know, one of their defenses uh, in the impeachment inquiry hearings that I heard was nobody heard the president get on the phone and say, I hereby bribe uh, Ukraine <laughs> for uh, uh, the purpose of my uh, political campaign. Um, and, and yet the very people who might have been uh, witnesses to those conversations or, or those types of conversations were prevented from testifying. So let's see, let's see what happens. So the impeachment articles are getting written up in judiciary. What would you like to see in them? What do you think needs to be in there? I don't necessarily want to get ahead of um, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee on this particular issue, but I think that there's overwhelming evidence of at least two sets of facts. Uh, one, with regard to the call itself, um, whether there was an abuse of power or coercion or bribery uh, with regard to the pressure scheme where the president attempted to pressure the Ukrainians to investigate his domestic political rivals and leveraged his office to do so. That's one set of facts. And then the other is basically obstructing Congress's investigation of that particular uh, affair. I mean, we were blocked uh, from getting virtually any documents from the State Department, from the Defense Department, from the Office of Management and Budget. And we were blocked from receiving testimony from some of the, the main witnesses. However, as you know, a number did come forward on their own, mm -hmm. uh, but a number of others did not or were blocked. On Monday, Judiciary Committee uh, is holding now its second hearing. Is there something there you want to hear, what you want to get out of that, that you think will bring some of that clarity you're looking for? With regard to the, um, the Monday hearing, I think mm -hmm. It's basically going to be presenting, as I understand it, uh, our findings from the impeachment inquiry uh, to the to the Judiciary Committee as they formulate their actions going forward. So, you know, between now and Monday, I, I'm not sure that there's going to be uh, a lot of new information uh, that hasn't been released in the report. However, again, because it's the holiday season, I'm not sure everybody is reading uh, every page of the report. <laughs> right. uh, the 300 pages um, are dense. And um, I think that um, it'll be the job of our attorneys who 
present the report on Monday to to bring out the highlights and and help to uh, weave them together uh, so that uh, people understand the narrative and and understand the testimony and, and context with each other. Republicans also have an opportunity to ask questions of the council, correct? Correct. So, I mean, should we expect it to look much like what we have seen for the last couple of weeks in the Intel Committee, the arguments made by Democrats and those made by Republicans? Or are you expecting that maybe there's a different line of questioning or uh, issue that gets brought up? There might be, but I don't, I haven't heard anything new Mm -hmm. uh, from the other side in terms of arguments. Um, I think their arguments are either that um, it didn't happen, uh, there was no pressure scheme, or if there was, uh, it's perfectly okay. I personally think that's a an unsatisfactory argument, um, but you know we may hear some version of that on Monday. Well, Congressman Krishnamurthy, thanks so much for coming in and talking with me again. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Amy. Each election season, political memoirs abound, doorstops that sometimes divulge more than intended. No matter how diligently they present themselves in the most electable light, they always reveal themselves, their insecurities, their fears, their ambitions. How to read a Politico on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. In the U.S., income inequality is the highest it's been since the Census Bureau began tracking it more than 50 years ago. As families struggle to make ends meet, many of them are also struggling to figure out how to pay for college. As the cost of tuition for attending four-year private college and public university has more than doubled since the late 80s. Today, college students that graduate with loans owe around $30,000 on average. The issue of making college affordable has become a leading issue for Democrats, but like the issue of healthcare, there are a lot of different opinions from the candidates on how to get there. I believe we should make public colleges and universities free. Part one, we are going to roll back student loan debt. Part two, to make college universally available with free tuition and fees. I also believe in free college for low and middle income students for whom cost could be a barrier. I just don't believe it makes sense to ask working-class families to subsidize even the children of billionaires. To help us understand how college moved from being affordable to expensive, I sat down with Caitlin Zaloom, professor of social and cultural analysis at NYU and author of Indebted, How Families Make College Work at Any Cost. There are many different explanations, but there are certain facts which are very, very clear. So first of all, Over decades now, states have been cutting funding to their higher education systems. That has meant that the budgets for state colleges and universities have been squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. Now, those institutions still need to get their funds to deliver the education they're committed to. So they raise tuition. They turn to philanthropy. They change their models by recruiting more out-of-state students and out-of-country students who pay high tuitions. 
the concept of these public colleges was that higher education was in the public interest. But why should me, taxpayer person, have to support all these people that, I don't know, I'd rather have my tax dollars go to something else? The balance between those things has clearly shifted toward thinking of higher education as a private good, something that primarily benefits the person who gets a degree. Mm -hmm. Now, during the 1980s, it became the absolutely dominant way of thinking about higher education, that it was a private good and that it would benefit individuals mostly by increasing their potential incomes in jobs in the future. We really lost, as a part of the public discourse, the idea that higher education had broad social benefits. Here we are. It's 2020, and every Democrat running for president has some version of whether we call it free college or debt-free college or free college with an asterisk? Is there an overall philosophy that links together the Democrats in their vision of higher education and how it is paid for? Yes, I think that it's not only that it that there's a vision that links the Democrats. I think it's a vision that links back to our own histories. It's that higher education should be understood as something that benefits us all. So it used to be many decades ago that a high school degree could provide a way for people to enter into the middle class and enter into a stable, prosperous life that had predictability in it and the potential to open opportunities for children. That's also always been part of what middle class life has meant in the United States. But today, a college education is more and more required for that. If we look at the outcomes for people with college degrees versus for those who don't, the possibility of having a stable life, a decent income, and, uh, and the possibility for children depends more and more heavily on having a college degree. Mm. The debate right now between someone like Pete Buttigieg and, say, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders is Pete Buttigieg would say, well, that's not really fair that everybody can get a free college education. Why should middle class people be subsidizing the educations of rich families who can afford to pay? There's a distinct difference among the Democratic candidates around who should be the beneficiary of a free or inexpensive education. Mm. So people like Pete Buttigieg don't believe that we should be considering higher education in, say, the same way that we do K-12 through education. Mm. Of course, we think that everyone should get K-12 through education and have a public option to, to do that, but that somehow higher education is a different kind of thing. So at that point of college, the students who have less should get more, and the students who came from families with more should pay more. Now, mm -hmm. that's the kind of language of redistribution that we're 
used to hearing about the mechanisms of, of the taxation system, but somehow that that debate has been shifted onto the shoulders of higher education. I think that's something that we should really think about. The biggest losers then in all of this are middle-class families who aren't wealthy enough to pay full freight, but aren't poor enough to get the benefits of either scholarships or financial aid, and they are the ones who are really bearing the brunt of all of this. They're bearing the brunt in a certain kind of way. I don't mm. want to say that there are bigger losers than lower-income people who are right. strapped in all sorts of ways, including right. being extremely indebted because the grants that that they receive from the federal government and other places simply have not kept up with the increases in the cost of attendance. So middle-class people are squeezed in a particular kind of way because the presumption is that they are going to be able to do it. They're going to be able Mm -hmm. to send their kids to and through college without undue strain. And that is no longer the case. It is now the case that the amounts of money that families are required to contribute in addition to the debt that students themselves have to take on has put so much pressure on middle-class families that it has actually redefined what it means to be middle-class. Kate, thank you so much for coming in and helping us dig through all of this. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Here with me now is Aaliyah Wong. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic covering education. I asked Aaliyah about the premise that getting a college degree serves as a social equalizer. Here's what she told me. There is this false notion of colleges as really a proxy for the American dream, a ladder into the middle class. While I think too much blame on colleges does distract from other forces, I don't think colleges uh, should get away with with their sort of refrains that they are equalizers uh, when they're really, uh, in many ways, kind of perpetuating the caste system in this country. So explain how that what you mean by that? Right. So basically, these days, if you if you break up the population into income brackets, what you'll see is that the extent to which those from the uh, wealthiest income bracket are uh, attending colleges, and particularly the the colleges have, that have the greatest return on investment at disproportionate rates. Uh, there was a study a few years ago that found that 24-year-olds from the two top groups actually accounted for 77% of the bachelor's degrees awarded. So that's more than three quarters. Uh, Graduates from the uh, households with the lowest incomes, uh, they were representing just 10% of all degrees awarded. So so we're really seeing a story of haves and have-nots. Why don't you talk about the issues that are contributing to this? So one major factor has been sort of declining state investment in in higher education. So state funding for for their universities, their flagships, their community colleges has really really plummeted, uh, and and so as a result, colleges are more reliant on tuition than ever before. It's also just become more expensive to educate and serve students, and so tuition has just skyrocketed, and and real. Um, public university tuition has tripled over the past three decades. And at the same time, we've seen middle income wages stagnate. So so it's this huge dissonance that that is creating somewhat of a, a crisis that's just, you know, 
poised to explode. And the government has tried to ameliorate this with sort of stopgap solutions, uh, primarily through the form of student loans. And that's why the student loan crisis has really uh, ballooned into what it is today. I think it's $120 trillion uh, now is um, how much the debt is worth. And so this was basically just a a catastrophe waiting to happen. So the issue of free college then, is is that the answer? Is that the way to at least ameliorate this inequality problem? Right. So the idea of free college, uh, it's obviously a a buzzword right now, and it's actually pretty um, broad term. It's it's kind of used as a catch-all to describe any sort of um, iteration of of this idea of really just giving certain students or all students a 100% discount. It is a nice idea, obviously. I mean, that is a model that we should aspire for. The problem is that there's so much inconsistency uh, across states, because it's often uh, state, um, state-driven policies, that uh, in how they're applied and what the criteria are and what the amounts are and uh, which institutions are eligible. All that stuff is really inconsistent. A lot of policymakers don't actually have, I don't think, the best grasp on what something like this entails, especially in recent years, because it's just been so popular. When we hear 2020 presidential candidates uh, really sort of embracing this notion and and kind of sort of suggesting, insinuating that it's some panacea can be really dangerous. And that's why uh, you you have people like Pete Buttigieg, who a week ago or so has had really kind of or sought to expose the ugly underbelly of this idea by saying that it would also benefit wealthy people, basically giving free access to college to, to people who don't really need it. This seems like a really big conundrum, which is the acknowledgement, I think, across the political spectrum that in this economy, having a high school degree is is no longer enough and that getting some sort of post-secondary education is critical. And yet we can't seem to figure out how to make this work. So I mean, are we are we just kind of stuck here then with with the system that we have and just can hope maybe we fix it around the edges? Or do you think that this really needs to be blown up and we kind of start all over again? I tend to, to believe that the, the latter contingency is going to happen in some way, shape or form. I don't think we're going to see this sort of massive reinvention of this system. But I do think this problem, this this vicious cycle of widening income inequality and this idea of getting ahead because it's a zero-sum game, I think all of that is obviously not sustainable. Also, I think we need to think about what sort of parents and high schools and, and those who work with the teenagers who are sort of priming themselves for college, like what are parents telling their kids about what they want them to do with a college degree? What are schools uh, telling students about what they should look for in a college, what they should do to prepare for college. Uh, so I think I think everyone deserves a little blame and a little scrutiny and needs to interrogate their their own actions a little, even journalists like us, not writing about Harvard every chance we get. And of course, the institutions themselves, the decision makers. I think a lot of the kind of micro controversies or crises they're dealing with have to do with this larger vicious cycle. 
Aaliyah, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through all of this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Aaliyah Wong is a staff writer at The Atlantic covering education. One more thought for me today on the primaries. There's never one reason why a promising candidate fails, but at the end of the day, the blame has to sit with the candidate him or herself. All the money, all the grassroots strength, all the media attention in the world does not matter if the candidate lacks a compelling message. There has to be a narrative, one that is easily understood and conveyed. Harris never had that. She had a lot of ideas and some good slogans, but as to why she wanted to be president and what she was going to do as president, that was hard for me to answer, especially in a quick sentence. I appreciate the frustration of many Democratic voters that a party that counts on young people, women, and voters of color as their base has four front runners that are all white, three are in their 70s, and only one is a woman. But getting to the top tier is hard. And lots of other very qualified people have failed to do it, too. That's all for us today. Remember, if you missed anything or wanted to listen back again, check out our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts and leave us a rating while you're there. We need the love people. Come on. The people who made this audio extravaganza are Patricia Jacob and Priscilla Alabi, board operator and engineer Debbie Daughtry, sound designer and director Jay Cowett, our digital editors are Polly Urungu and Dina Saedemad. David Gable is our executive assistant. And finally, our fearless leader and senior producer is Amber Hall. Special thanks to Lee Hill as well. Of course, call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. The Takeaway.